2: Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me, but I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Order. Earth Water is a company that is faithful based and patriotic earth water is an amazing water it will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide it has over 70 antioxidants and minerals it's good trust me i already sleep better i dropped one of my prescriptions and i'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon so ask yourself do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier who doesn't so if so check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right. And we're here live listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just put the name of the show out there Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, Southern Sense.com. And also streaming on Facebook and YouTube successfully today. Yay! <laughs> Along with my courageous co host, putting up with my long winded <laughs> intro, Curtis B.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you?
3: I am doing fine um considering everything that's going on up there in, in Washington DC but at least we we know a way to get all 100 senators together at one time and that's to put up a controversial you know Supreme Court candidate that that has an R by his name
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to give a little shout out because we've got a member of our, our fan club here, also a special friend, not feeling a little under the weather. So get well wishes go out to Kel. Uh, she's up in the chat room. So Kel, we're thinking of you and praying for you. Welcome to everyone that's in the chat rooms and listening in on the studio and all the other ways that we're broadcasting. We have a lot to talk about today. Two great guests. We've oh, got yeah. Twilo That is joining us at the first half of the show. And maybe we can extend her into the second half. We never know. We can always twist her arm. She's always a good (laughs) game for that. Last time she was supposed to be on here, she got the flu. And she and I were texting just minutes before going on the air. And I just told her, you know, get better. It's more important for her to be better than to be a guest on the show here because we need her in the fight. Uh, So she has agreed to be with us today. And on the second half, an exciting guest. Um, I saw some of his videos out there when I was doing my um, uh, research into the show. Retired Navy Captain Ryman Schof. Uh, He's got an organization out there called TurningPointsInAmerica.org. So it's going to be a great, great show. Uh, That said, uh, anyone that listens to the show knows we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Army, Sarge, Army Master Sergeant Jonathan J. Dunbar. He was killed in action on March 30th of 2018 while serving during Operation Inherent Resolve. And this is from the Military Times and it reads, The Department of Defense released the name of a soldier who was killed in an improvised explosive device attack in Syria. Master Sergeant Jonathan Dunbar, 36, of Austin, Texas, was deployed in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. He died from his wounds in Syria when an IED detonated near his patrol. Another coalition service member was killed and five others were wounded in the incident. Dunbar was assigned to headquarters U.S. Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. According to information from USA SOC, Dunbar first entered the Army as an infantryman in May of 2005. His first assignment was with 1st Battalion 325th Airborne Infantry Regiment at Fort Bragg. During his tenure, he deployed once to Afghanistan and once to Iraq in support of combat operations. In November 2009, Dunbar transitioned to the 2nd Squadron 38th Cavalry Regiment Long-Range Surveillance at Fort Hood, Texas, where he served for four years as a squad leader. During his time at Fort Hood, Dunbar deployed to Iraq again in support of combat operations. In 2013, Dunbar was assigned to USA SOC, where he served as a team member and deployed three times in support of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. His awards and decorations include the Bronze Star Awards, the Army Commendation Medal, 4th Award, the Army Achievement Medal, 6th Award, the Afghan Camp- Campaign Medal with 2 Bronze Service Stars, the Iraq Campaign Medal with 2 Bronze Service Stars, the Ranger Tab Combat Infantry Badge, Expert Infantry Badge, the Pathfinder Badge, the Military Free Fall Jump Master Badge, and the Parachute Badge. But this doesn't tell much about Master Sergeant Dunbar. Instead, there's an article by Jamie Mass at KUT.org, and he wrote, long before Jonathan Dunbar was a father and a soldier, he was a little brother. He was the biggest nerd ever, Crystal Dunbar said. He had big Coke bottle glasses, and he was always playing the superhero. So whether he was playing cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians or anything like that, He was always the superhero. The Army Master Sergeant died in Syria on March 30th. He was the first Austinite to die from combat-related injuries since 2012. Dunbar was born in Minnesota, but his family relocated far north to North Austin, near Brian Powell's family. Powell says the Dunbar kids became fast friends with the other neighborhood kids, and apparently they were a loud bunch. We were so rowdy around the neighborhood that I think some of the homeowners association people were actually trying to ban kids from being able to go to the pool and stuff like that, Pavel said. For the record, they never were banned. Jonathan Dunbar later attended Connolly High School, graduating in 1999. I was actually fiercely protective of him growing up, Crystal Dunbar said. Even when he was a teenager, he was the rough and tough teenager, and I was always fiercely protective of him. The protective instinct kicked in even when he enlisted in the Army in 2005. He actually went into the Army for his son, she said. He was young and a young father, and he decided he needed a better life for his son. And seeing the change in him from that point to going into the military, we weren't going for him into the military just based on our own fear and our own selfishness. But I saw it changed him. It changed him into an amazing father. Dunbar thrived in the arab infantry. He was promoted to squad leader and deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. The first time you see him, I was like, Jesus, that guy is huge, said Raphael Rafa Centino. It was at Fort Bragg that then Sergeant Ed Dunbar met Specialist Raphael Centino. The two helped lead a quick reaction force unit. I couldn't ask a better squad leader, Santino said, and I feel that I had his confidence in running his team. We got a bond real close because we were in touch proximity to one another under difficult, stressful situations. By 2013, Dunbar had joined special operations at Fort Bragg. The missions got a lot more complicated and dangerous. I knew, given the nature of the work he was doing, he was always in a dangerous situation, and it was always unpredictable when he could leave and when he could come back, Sentino said. But I remember asking him, hey man, how's it going? How are you liking it? And he said it was dangerous work. And that coming from John, that meant a lot. Pal, who was also an, also an Army veteran, said the way Dunbar described it work, it seemed like a movie. I can't really get into details on what he told me, he said. But I can tell you, there are probably people that are alive today that probably wouldn't have been able to go home and see their children if it wasn't for him. The missions that he went on were extremely secretive, Crystal Dunbar said. Even his wife never knew where he was, and he couldn't talk about them. He did tell us that, especially my dad. He talked about, you know, what he was going on, some pretty dangerous things, and he actually talked about what he wanted us to do if he didn't come home. And he just wanted us to be strong and to love one another as a family. The 36-year-old was, a classified, was on a classified mission in Syria when a roadside bomb exploded, according to the Department of Defense. Dunbar died from his injuries, along with a British soldier. This man was a father, a friend, a brother, a child, Pal said. He was an amazing individual, and you know, he did sacrifice for us. John was the best, Santino said. He was quiet and reserved. He knew when to talk to you and how to talk to you. And I loved him like only a little brother could love a big brother. And at times I found him annoying, just like a little brother always finds a big brother annoying. How he's always perfect in anything he does. So we used to butt heads a lot. But at the end of the day, we used to always have a beer together. And you know, have that bond. John was the greatest. Dunbar leaves behind his pregnant wife and three children. The funeral service was held in North Carolina, where he lived, and he was buried in Arlington National Cemetery on August 20th. Today's show is dedicated to Master Sergeant Dunbar. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in the military from the birth of our nation through today and into the future. And we also dedicate this show to the first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We never say thank you enough. May God bless each and every one. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herondon, My Name is America.
1: virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants.
2: Radio Sph Five Media, Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, District Speaker, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, Southern Dash Sense dot com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the Radio trick, Annie, along with my courageous and colorful, and also erudite co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett. <laughs> Curtis, oh man, we have we have so much to talk about. And I, I posted a a video up in the uh, in the chat room because this is just hysterical. It's going viral. It's a a video. Uh, Washington Post has posted, a couple other news agencies have posted. Cause they really, they really found out that they're on the losing end of everything that Trump does. But he's getting onto Air Force One, and there's toilet paper stuck to his foot. So this is the big news of the day: Trump boarding Air Force One with toilet paper stuck to his shoe. Curtis, unmute yourself. Did we lose Curtis? Oh, man, tell me we've lost Curtis. Curtis, are you out there? Oh, no, come on. Curtis can't unmute himself from Skype, so maybe you may have to try to dial back in. All right, well, Cool Mike is stepping in, so thanks a lot, Cool Mike.
4: Hey, no problem. Yeah, well, (laughs) the vote went through, Annie. Um, I got to ask you, man, what, man... Lindsay, since we left off, and I told you I couldn't believe you must have called his office again. That guy is on fire. Man, he's throwing punches like Muhammad Ali. You see him last <laughs> night? Wow. <laughs> oh, man.
2: Where was he eight years ago? Where was this Lindsey Graham eight years ago when I, we I needed him to stand you. up against Obama?
4: <laughs> I mean, him telling basically the Democrats enough of your lies? I mean, oh my God! (laughs) Well, you know what? Uh, Who who knows what? But tomorrow's the big vote. Hopefully, they uh, you know they'll at least have fifty. And uh, I'll tell you, if they do, um, (laughs) another that's gonna that's gonna be devastating. I mean, the Dems have put everything into this. This is their midterm. Yeah,
3: and they have. this is is their revenge.
4: Yeah, well, just think if uh, they don't need the guy from Montana to come, if they may, if it's forty nine, if it's fifty, no, forty nine, yes, they will keep the vote open till Sunday. He'll come on Sunday and vote, and then Pence will obviously break the tiebreaker Sunday night. But if they don't need that, even if he gets confirmed, I mean, man, can you imagine what social media would be will be like? I I, I mean, they will not have been this freaking furious since they got parole.
2: (laughs) Well, I have to apologize. Um, Twee has been trying to dial in, and I gave her a wrong number because I sent her a text with my fingers, and I've got a new (laughs) phone, and it's got got, uh, one of these protective uh, face plates on it, so sometimes you hit the wrong letter and number. (laughs) So she's trying to dial the wrong number. Sorry. so Twee, tweet. If you're listening in, I just just texted you the right number. Oh, man. I can't win for trying today. Oh, my goodness. Anyway. Yeah, this is Friday. Yeah, yeah. You know, there is a possibility that uh, this uh, uh, senator from uh, Montana may have to fly in because Susan Collins is saying she will make her pronouncement at 3 o'clock. So we've got to keep someone keep an eye on Fox News for us at 3 o'clock. Um, to see what whether she decides to go up or down. And if anyone watched, did anyone actually watch the vote on the floor? Because I did. And, you know, most of the, the people in the early voting, you know, they just stood up behind the desk and said, yay or nay. You know, and that was it. No, no grandstanding, nothing. But towards the end, when it was very obvious to the Democrats that they were on the losing side, uh, some of them went directly up to the chair, And stood in front of the chair and gave the thumbs down. I mean, to go from where your desk is in the the hall there, all the way down the steps, and then proceed around all the reporters to go directly before the presiding president of the chamber and do the thumbs down. They can't just stand there and say yay or nay like every other normal person does. But many of them did a show vote. And instead of saying yay or nay, just did the thumbs down for the camera. For the camera. Yeah, so...
3: It's all theatrics. Okay. Well, they are—they are
4: living on another planet. And I think uh, two weeks well, ago, no, a week ago when you had your guest Annie, they said it the best. That uh, I mean, the, the the people that are their biggest followers or whatever, they think this is a big uh, play, you know, a put on, or you know what I mean, a theatrical. It's a Broadway thing. That's it.
2: Well. Well, Mike, I've, I've got to apologize. Twee, I'm sorry. I got a brand new phone, as I was explaining to my listeners, and it's got one of these <laughs> protective covers on the screen. So sometimes you hit the wrong letters and numbers, and I didn't double check the message before I hit send. So, rule number one to those of us that are technologically challenged, especially since yeah. we're over 50, and I won't say what age I am, That's that we sometimes these, these devices get us and bite us right back mm-hmm. in the butt. That's funny. Well, hello to you both. Hi, Ann. Hi, Curtis.
5: And uh, thank you so much How for having you? me on again. Oh, it's always our
2: pleasure to have
5: And And, Ann, yeah, uh, you know, uh, as you know, I have my own radio show, and there's only one number they provide to me, and that's the only number that I try to remember. They try to give me another number before, uh, and I'm like, no. Just no. <laughs> just give me one number and stick with that number, and that's it, because my uh, senior moment will be kicking in any time, and I cannot promise you that I will remember the ditches of the new number. So just one number. That's it. first <laughs>
0: so right. that
2: yeah. week What makes it worse, I've had the same number for eight years. <laughs> this is how oh, over eight years. <laughs>
5: that's okay. Yeah, it means you that you're moving device. a lot faster. I'm sorry, Curtis. Well, listen, we were,
2: we were
0: talking just about
2: she has uh, the a new Kavanaugh. Device. Yeah, new device. We were talking about the Kavanaugh, where they brought it forward, so now it's going to go to full vote uh, tomorrow. And we were talking about the show voting that the Democrats had, because I was actually watching it on TV, because I wanted to see if they normally put like a scorecard up there, you know, how many yay, how many nay, and they weren't doing that. So of course, you didn't know what the tally was unless you yourself were tallying it. But the showboating on the leading Democrats, such as Schumer, uh, Bloomberg and uh, others, where they had to actually strut their stuff across the entire hall in front of the uh, presiding president of the chamber. And instead of going yay or nay, doing the big thumbs down for the camera, and the the complete showboating on these leading Democrats was amazing.
5: Oh, of course. You know, of course. They have to make it – uh, and I heard your one of the comments uh, when I call in was theatric. You know, it, it, this is all about pageantry, and this is all about look at me, look at what kind of a, uh, uh, a uh, you know a show I can put up, how great the circus will be, and and this 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 is their narrative. The more uh, crazier they get, the more uh excitement they tend to generate with their base and this is not you know the 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 norm that we're talking about this is a very aggressive this is a very chaotic base that they're talking about this is like the leftist and I have Democrats friends but I tell you what the the Democrats Party has left many of my Democratic friends, you know, that they have left the, the this new Democratic Party is no longer the OJFK pragmatic dem- uh, way of thinking anymore. This is like whatever is uh, the most uh, obnoxious is the better. So oh, that's uh, true. It, it's really that's sad. True. Yeah, it is really is sad.
2: That It is. It is very sad. And, you know, the funny part is, is that now they know they've lost keeping it off the floor for a full vote. The lead story in The Washington Post, when I was checking news just before coming on air, is a video of President Trump boarding Air Force One with toilet paper stuck to his shoe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's
5: funny. Oh, that is funny. (laughs) Well, you know, hey. Um, I have to give it to this president. You know, he knows how to draw attention, right? And he always takes the opportune time to uh to to, to to take away from the negatives of others uh subject other subjects and kind of put it back on him so on himself. So I I, I love him for that. <laughs> and yeah. and I think, you know, with talking about Kavanaugh, right? I think um President Trump is very Methodical. Things that he say, I believe, and despite what the, the left, uh, leftists are saying, and despite what the moderate Republicans are saying, I think that, that, that what President Trump, uh, uh, there, his actions uh, are choreographed. Um and, and, and it just it brings excitement back to his face. It's very choreographed. I mean it's very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, if you're a marketing person like I am, because that's my background is marketing, I've always looked for uh different uh ways of people marketing themselves or their 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 products or their services, their products or their services. And I find that um President Trump is very interesting. Uh, and and he knows how to market himself.
3: Twee. No, so it is. It's true. You go ahead, you Yes. Have, since we're on the subject of Kavanaugh and um, <laughs> Trump, you have two sons, mm-hmm. and um, are you ever afraid for them when it comes to, you know, the possibility of a, a woman accusing them of sexual harassment okay. or something, and and the the model. At that time, is believe the woman?
5: You know, that's a great question, Curtis, and it's a very, very sensitive topic that I think that we have to to uh, to talk about because, um, like most women, I don't know about you, Anne, but you know, like like most women, um, we have been sexually harassed or as harassed uh, or uh, assaulted one time or, or another. And I myself have been, you know, a victim of sexually assaulted in my early days. So um, I am very, um, uh, I have great empathy for women who have been assaulted. And that's a conversation that that I think that we have to talk about. Yes, women have been and are being assaulted. Uh, on a daily basis. But I'm also uh, very compassionate towards the victims, the victims of malicious um, uh,
0: uh,
5: attacks, like Judge Kavanaugh, I I would say. You know, I I have to be compassionate about those victims uh, of unjust allegations. And as a mom of two Sons, I have firsthand experience witnessed to what I call a girl who cried wolf, and I will share with you the story in middle school um, that happened to one of my sons. I was I was a very involved mom, uh, a full time parent volunteer. I pick up my children uh, after school. I take them to school every day, and I pick them up from school every day. And um, even though we have uh, a bus uh, or bus services that just pass our street, and the reason I do that because I wanted to be, stay connect with my sons, and so I I knew what they were doing at any given time during their their uh, school schedule. And so, um, and I spent full time as a mom volunteer school. I mean, I had an office there at the school and all of that stuff. So one day I got a phone call from an assistant principal and uh, she called and I, I, you know, I don't like take, getting these phone calls, right? I, I mean, I'm, I've seen these, uh, the administration on a daily basis, but I just don't like getting a phone call from, from them. I have always go into their office. And, and talk to them and that was on my term right but getting a phone call from assistant or a principal is another story so I got a phone call from assistant principal and she said to me she said mrs. Low I have to tell you uh your your son so and so uh was um some a, a this uh, the student female student allegedly um uh uh that was an allegation that he was sexually assaulted her uh, between class today, and I was floored because Curtis, as you know me, I mean I am, um, you know, I teach my sons the um, respect for women. I would teach my sons uh, to protect those who can't protect themselves. And so I was floor and I said to the assistant principal, "I said there's no way that my son would do this, but let me ask you a couple of questions. And I wanted to know when it happened. I wanted to know where it happened, and I know I want to know what the allegation was. And so when the assistant principal told me where and where the alleged assault uh, assault happened, I said, absolutely." And, and when it happened, I said, absolutely, that couldn't have happened because at this time, uh, this was between uh, two classes and within that small window uh, for them to get back and forth to classes. Uh, my son couldn't have the time to get from his locker to his class and be somewhere else to assault this person. And, and, and I said, and, and, and my son wouldn't even know what that means, because I can't remember the term that the girl used, but she allegedly uh, is said that he did something to her. And I said, there's no way that, and this was when he was in sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade, by the way. And I said, there's no way my son would even know what that mean or what that's, you know, how, what he would, uh, uh, how that would, he would act like that and the assistant principal said to me she said you know that's exactly the same wording that your son told us when we investigated the at the at the allegation and it would just so happened that what i told her where he was at that moment of the allegation was the exact thing that my son told them where he was so after talking to me, I encouraged the administration to go and dig into uh, deeper into the situation, and they did, and they came back to tell me that he was falsely accused and that the girl was suspended from school for that allegation. So while I, I believe that there are women who ha- are and have been sexually harassed, and assaulted. I don't believe in all women when they say that they, um, you know, they they have been sexually assaulted. And when you look at the situation with um, Christine. Placing Ford and her allegations and the timing and the the holes in her story, it just doesn't add up to me. And as soon as I heard the testimony, because I sat there and I sat through the whole two testimonies, Ford and Kavanaugh. And I have to tell you, there was nothing in Ford's testimony that led me to believe that Kavanaugh was the perpetrator I find that she may have been attacked um, but the more that I've learned about her background after the uh, uh, the Senate traditional uh, committee interview the more I think that it was staged um, I, I just you know her body language. as a marketing person I read people pretty well um and I try to understand people's behavior and just her body language and the way that she uh her appearance just doesn't i mean they 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 didn't they didn't um give me the message that she was uh, assaulted by assaulted. Or by this person, so I'm gonna put myself out there in the limb and to say that I don't know now that Christine Ford was sexually assaulted. I have to say that because it just, you know, the, the whole thing just doesn't make sense to me now. So I, I, well, I, I, I of- think that the Me Too, I think of- that the Me Too movement has gone way too far. And And I do worry, and I am extremely concerned for the male population in this country
1: well
2: there's there's so many holes that were in the story, you know, as, as a police officer, you know, I had to take these reports, you know, and, and determine, you know, where, whether or not to forward it to the detectives or whatever, or give it to my supervisor. So, you know, again, you know, I had to be able to read body language and determine from where something is being flubbed and where there may be a kernel of truth. And when I listened to her, I found it hard to believe, I would say 90% of what she said, honestly, you know, if something did happen, I don't think Kavanaugh at all was involved in it. Uh, we 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 go back to her background itself, her postings in her high school and college yearbooks. So she was not quite as an innocent child as she made herself out to be during the testimony, as if this was her first sexual experience. Uh, then you go on to uh, the fact that she herself, was someone uh, who helped train her best friend, who happened to have been an FBI agent up until 2016, uh, how to pass a polyg- polygraph test. Now, it, here she was able to train her best friend in order to become an FBI agent, so then she bragged, they brag about her attorney having given her a polygraph test that she passed. Well, gee, lo and behold, she has the skills to help someone pass a polygraph test. And then it, just from there, things started to unravel and fall apart. she couldn't find anyone to corroborate her story. Her story kept changing, and this is one of the things you've got to look at, especially with someone that's accusing another individual of a crime. You know how consistent does the story change as they tell it over time? you know as like you i I would say probably ninety percent of the women out there have uh, faced some sort of sexual harassment or sexual assault, myself included and We don't talk about it mostly, unless there was an actual crime committed. You know, there was one time that I did ask to have a police call because I was grabbed on a public street. The guy tried to grab me down Mm. an alley, and all I had in my hand was a coffee cake I had just bought to go to the office. And I just kept on hitting him with the coffee cake. And (laughs) I was going, my mom was picking me up and taking me to the office. And, you know, I was shaking. For about three weeks, I would not walk down that street. But, yes, in that instance, I wanted the police called right away because my thought was, here I am on a public street, the main roadway in our town. And if this guy tries to grab me, who else has he tried to grab? And I was just right. a teenager. And,
5: Right. And, you know, I noticed that a lot of times the, the sexual assaults don't get reported because often it's done by uh, people that. They know, like these women know. So they don't report them because they're thinking, well, they're they're friends or they're family members or blah, blah, or et cetera, or whatever. But if a stranger assaulted you, the first thing you would do is call 911. And I am shocked that Christine Ford did not uh, call and report the incident when She was assaulted by Kavanaugh, who she doesn't even know. She didn't even know him, and he assaulted her. So most women would, you know, if they have been assaulted by a stranger or someone that they don't know, they would immediately tell their friends or their parents or call the police and report the incident. So I find her story to be um unbelievable or not credible not credible is the word um but um uh, you know th- there's so many what i find is interesting is be, besides uh the sexual- allegation i find the YouTube movement is uh is a is getting out of control, Uh, you have these uh, women or these um, actors and actresses now coming out and say, what is that term they call uh, believe women? Um, Based on my experience with the situation with my son, I would absolutely say that no, not all women are believable. And so, uh, you, you know, you, you have to start fighting for what's right, right, for the victims out there. And uh, you, you just can't, you know, for the, all the mothers and, the uh, you know, the fathers and the grandfathers who, uh, you know, who, who have to now worry about um, these false accusations and false allegations um, by someone that don't even like them, it's very dangerous for our men yeah.
2: population. That is that is absolutely true. The Me Too movement, you know, the left wrote it out so that they can quash any conservative voice out there. So if you're a guy, uh, you're gonna be accused of something. You face it. You yeah, know, the second you, know you put your this face out the, in public.
5: This is not about the conservative voice anymore. this is about uh regardless of your party affiliate, your political party affiliation this is about women versus men now I mean what is next right is that uh it's going to be uh children versus their parents
2: it already is remember Al Gore when he did his his movie he was telling kids teach your parents because they're too stupid to not know this uh, Al Gore was already pitting kids against parents. Uh, what did Nazi Germany do? They made yeah. the kids into the brown shirt <laughs> right. units so they can tell on their parents. We've we've seen the fascist uh, use of this throughout history.
5: Right, right, right. Oh, absolutely. I mean that you know that's how they brainwash our uh, youth to uh, you know to to go against. You know, their, their parents are to go against authorities. You know, there was a time, remember, when we were growing up, we were learned to, uh, to have respect for authority. And because of the liberal. Uh, There's no longer respect for authorities. I have always told my boys raising them and from what I've learned when I was raised was that you always respect your parents, you always respect your teachers, you always respect your administrators, you always uh, respect officers and people in authority. And I've always told my 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 boys. I said, I don't care if your teachers are are mean to you. You do not raise your voice at your teachers. You come to me and you tell me about it. And by golly, I have made teachers cry, no, <laughs> so, because they have made my kids cry. You know, but that's a different story. Really? But I tell well, my kids, you know, my boys, do not ever disrespect authorities. And that's how I was raised, and that's how I raised my my uh, my voice, and uh, sadly that's not the uh, uh the norm anymore. you know we are living in a very chaotic uh society now. look at uh antifa you know very chaotic, very uh destructive very um, uh nasty, nasty evil environment. So look what they're doing uh you know. To to Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, these are the Democrats. These are the elected officials. These are supposedly to be to be people who have uh, integrity and uh, you know um, to be uh, you know they're supposed to be respectful people and they're acting like a bunch of clowns. I mean, they're nothing more than bozos that try. Well, or, actually, you know,
3: actually they're acting like fascists. You know, the, yes. the in your face tactics. Um,
5: oh, yes. yes. You know,
3: everything they blame Trump for being, you know, disrespectful or loose cannon and just, you know, um, all out of sorts. That's what they are. Their behavior, right. you know, it's on TV every day, you know, how they, they if they don't like something, they throw a, a temper tantrum. Right. Well,
2: That's Tweet, what is a, exactly There's are. a lot to that because. I was watching I was watching Fox News, and I don't know why I just didn't turn the show off. It was uh, their 12 o'clock show, but they had a liberal on there, and my goodness, he was doing what exactly what a fascist does is that he'll throw out anything there, making it as if he said it, it, it is the truth. And some of the things he was saying were absolutely face lies. We're here you and I as a conservative base what, what we do on, upon a truth, upon a fact. And yet what we're seeing from the other side is if I say it, then it has to be the truth. So simply because Dr. Ford said this, it must be the truth because she's a Democrat, she's a liberal, and we only speak the truth as they see it instead of knowing what the actual facts are. But when we go and dwell and delve into the, the facts and we say, wait a minute, these things are not jiving. There's a problem here. We get screamed down. We get cursed out. And you had this group at a um, college in Texas, it's young conservatives, try to set up a table to give an open forum for people to discuss the issue of Kavanaugh. Come here. We're pro-Kavanaugh. You're against them. Let's set up a table so we can sit down and have a conversation. And what instead happened was they were mobbed. A riot started to break out, and campus police had to provide them security. Their signs were being ripped up. They were physically threatened. But this is, this is not how America should be. This is not the America that we want or we know. And this is the problem we have here.
5: Common sense, courtesy, and respect, not the norm anymore. It's all about fascists in your face. I'm louder than you, and I know what I'm talking about, and you don't. And you're an idiot. And you're stupid if you don't see my viewpoint. And that's their mentality. And it's sad that they yelling and screaming that we're for women, we're for minorities, we're for, you know, the the uh, underserved. But sadly. This population that they're talking about are nothing more than pawns to their democratic ideologies and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, political
2: um, rhetoric, and that's it. Yeah, that, so, That's the problem. That is the problem. And you were talking about the indoctrination of our kids, and this was on The Blaze uh, by staff writer uh, Sarah Tyler. And she writes, and believe it or not, it's got to be from the left coast. A third-grade teacher from Los Angeles had devised a simple chart for her students to find out what consent actually means. Lisa Kleinrock, a third-grade teacher at, catch the name of the school, and tell me if you think it's a conservative school, Citizens of the World Charter School in Silver Lake created the chart. And, I mean... Uh, The parents got a hold of it, and obviously it didn't go over too well. And this track goes, what does it mean to give consent, to give permission, to say yes or no, to be allowed to do something? And then she gives, you know, what does consent sound like? Yes, sure. Yes, please. Of course. Yes. I'll say that. Grammar on this is absolutely awful. Okay. Must Mm -hmm. sound positive and enthusiastic. And when do we need to ask for consent? For giving a hug borrowing things yeah. of course someone better ask me before they take it. That's just common sense. Touching another person. Turn around right. to touch your elbow to get your attention. I have to ask you consent to touch your elbow to get your content your attention. Does that sound like an oxymoron? Yeah. Uh, kissing. Wait. Sharing and secrets. I'm gonna tell you a secret. Oh no, I gotta ask you first if I can tell hmm. you the secret. Um, hmm. This this is absolutely crazy, but this is what's yep. going on in our schools. Yeah. Well,
5: the Me Too movement is why I believe there's some validation of you know the the uh, foundation, the intent of the Me Too movement is to give a voice for uh, sexual assault victims to come forward and and uh, uh and report you know the problems and or talk about the uh the the problem, but I believe that it's have gone way too far. I believe that it's changing the behaviors and the interactions between women and men um, it's it's very you know the male population. Now has to really think about how they behave towards a woman. They have to be really cautious about what they say or whether they can touch their arm without being uh, allegedly uh, of of an attacked. Yeah, all um, the way
3: back to elementary school.
5: Yes. So, and <laughs> and how far do we go back? to, you know, what age group do we hold these um, male and female, you know, these actions um, accountable, right? Um, Interestingly enough, the Brett Kavanaugh case also not only talk about the sexual allegations, but it's also talking about the accountability on a teenager, how they behaved when they were, uh, teenagers versus adults—how they behave before they're eighteen—has a lot of um, implication of 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 their how how they were gonna be when they grow up. So what I guess what I'm saying is that they're they're now they're looking at you know teenagers, kids that they yeah. they expect kids to be he held accountable like an adult. You know, a lot of these allegations, cavanaughs uh, drinking and and uh, supposedly this sexual attack, which is nothing there, but these allegations um, happened before he was 18. So now they disregard all of his, uh, the good that he have done, for the country in the last thirty years. They disregarded all of that. They're now focusing on his behavior when he was sixteen, seventeen, uh and under eighteen. And I find that to be uh, worrisome for um especially for parents. Um I mean my, my children um thank God they're twenty one and twenty three now so they you know they're 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 not in that small age group where I have to worry about their uh, behaviors in grade school anymore. Uh, they they're old it's, enough to know what to do now. But my gosh, it's, think it's about gone all too far. Of those kids. It has gone too it's, far. Think it's about gone those way kids. Too far. Yeah. yeah, think about you know <laughs> that your 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 children coming home, or you get a phone call from your uh your uh, your school administrator and say that your son is going to be arrested because he touched some girl on an arm, or that he was uh, he's um he wasn't invited to talk to her, but uh, she didn't consent, like you said, Anne. That he, she didn't consent for him to talk to her or she didn't consent for her uh, for him to touch her on an arm uh, or maybe a shoulder or something that now he's was arrested or suspended from oh, school for that just think well, about now, the, the a uh, implication to there's, that
2: yeah. yeah there's a question now uh, from our friend Vito Esposito in the uh, chat room he's got a, his own show called Mama Mia No Sharia but he's asking you ah. what your opinion is of the left's narrative blaming white male or white privilege. You know, that's the newest thing. And you hear white people go, well, we're guilty of white privilege. And it's the the white male society that is oppressing us. It has this gotten just absolutely, you know, I'm going to say I a curse, but I don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> go
5: ahead. Let it rip.
2: <clears throat> you
0: deserve it. I that shit crazy. You know, we, we need to be, <laughs> yeah.
5: Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I don't believe in color. I believe we are children of God. I believe that we bleed red blood. I don't see myself, and I'm an Asian, by the way, uh, and I, I said that, I, but I'm a Vietnamese born. But I don't see myself as an Asian or Vietnamese. I see myself as an all-American girl. And with that, um, I... I'm terrified that our country is so divisive now. It's all about identity politics anymore. I've never thought myself as of an Asian until I got involved in politics because the left has done a great job with uh, pushing that narrative that you need to be black you know, to, to do this, that, and the other. You need to be Hispanic to do this, that, and the other. You need to be uh, Asian to do this and the other. And white, you guys are done. <laughs> Basically, that's the left narrative. And, and so I, I'm petrified of what's happening to uh, people out there uh, because of the color of their skin. And it just
2: happened to be white skin. So, yeah, you know, um I tell the story there where, I, where I, when I was a cop, you know, I'm standing there and I've got this female cop telling me that I'm privileged and I'm wearing a $20 Gap jacket. She's wearing a $700 Silver Fox. She came from a mm. privileged family, a family of wealth. And I came where you made a can of tuna and
0: uh, mm. where's
2: that uh, macaroni and cheese? For a meal for six people. Uh, No, both my parents had to work because there was four kids in the house. We did not have a lot of money. And she was telling me about privilege. Privilege when I had to work two at one point, three jobs just to put myself through college. And she went through on her daddy's money. So she's telling me that it's white privilege. White privilege, when I was told many times I could not apply for a job because they had to hire minorities only, and says, Well, I'm a female, that makes me a minority, doesn't No, you have to be black or Hispanic. Told to my face that. Mm. Yeah. Well, tell me, the well, white you know, privilege.
5: yeah. Well, I think that because of the color of your skin, now the narrative is different. You know, whatever happened to the belief of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's famous saying, you know, regardless of the color of your skin, right? Um, But apparently the left just used that line and said, damn you because the color of your skin i mean they just use that line to fit their narrative but um talking about white privilege i personally i don't see and again i want to remind your listeners that i'm not white okay um because of identity politics now i'm you know i'm telling people that i'm uh, Asian and I look very Asian. Um, that there, there is minority privileges in America. Uh, look at all the affirmative actions that are uh, that were set aside for minority, uh, for minorities. So. Um, it's, you know, look at the education. Look at free education for minorities. Look at free education for the underserved. Uh, look at all of these money that are pouring into under uh, uh, underprivileged communities. I mean, uh, my, I I think that my there is a lot of minority privileges there in America, and uh, and if you are white Americans, you're pretty much get set all the way back to the end of the line when it comes to college uh, entries, when it comes to uh, job uh, opportunities now because of uh, affirmative actions. Now, if you white men, you're pretty much done for. You know, uh, look at the new law in California now that they, uh, companies have to have women, have to have women. On in their on their board of directors or in a high position. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, socialism. That's socialism. No more, um, social no, no more yeah. uh, that, you know. Uh, yeah.
2: it's no more a meritocracy. It's it's right. who you know and and how you were and the, how you were. And yeah. the meritocracy is is almost dead, and we've got to revise it. We've got to go by your ability, by your merit, by your your worth, not simply because of what your skin color is or your sexual orientation is. Matter of fact, in the LBGT community, if you're white, male, and gay, you are a part of the white privilege now. You are no longer part of the minority, the the depressed class, mm. no, because you are yeah. white. You can't understand what it means to really be gay because you happen to be white. And that is the, the what they're being told which is why we had Brandon Strucker on here who started the Walk Away Movement with that video he mm-hmm. did about a year ago. And right. it's such a pleasure to have right. him here there because of him. A lot of people are waking up to what is going on within the Democratic Party. Uh, Katie Arrington was up in Charleston just this past week, and she had a whole host of people from the Black Chamber of Commerce, black businesses, publicly say, Democrats, you've been – You've been BSing us for too long. And they sided with Katie Arrington for her run for Congress. They walked mm. away from Clyburn. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. actually, it was um, Mark Sanford who lost the seat to Katie Arrington. Uh, so they're mm-hmm. siding. With Katie Arrington. People are waking up in America. And um, Mm -hmm. we got our next guest coming in. I don't know if you want to hang uh, around with us, Tweet, because this guy is very interesting, and you may want him on your show, too. But one last question we got from Vito before we bring our next guest on is Vito wants to know if you will run for office again. And there are several people. uh, (laughs) Our friend Kel, who up in Canada, is going, she loves you. Will you run again?
5: Oh wow. I didn't realize your guest uh now well where is he from? Where does he live? In Florida or Oh uh, uh, Vito,
2: does he live? I believe it's up in New York, isn't he? Vito, you're in New York? No. I've got I've had people call in from Australia. I've had people contact yes. me from yes. Europe and uh, all crazy yes. places. So I never know where my listeners are. But they're they're basically oh, worldwide. Uh so if you answer, uh, well, the, if you go to bring
0: well, the office
5: the, again. Yeah. Well, thank you for your support. Um, I'm having a lot of fun right now doing what I do. I have my own radio show. I am very involved in politics at the national level. I go back and forth to Washington on a regular basis. So, and and, and what I do right now gives uh, gives me an opportunity to to be. Um, Not politically correct. (laughs) And I love that, especially, you know, this time in in our political environment. Um, I don't know if I will run again, but I guess we will wait and see. I cannot say no and I cannot say yes, but we'll wait and see. But I'm just having a lot of fun right now. And Vito, thank
2: you so much for your support. All right. Well, let's bring our next guest in, retired Navy Captain Ryman Schuf. Did I say that correctly?
6: No, it's and shelf, like a loaf, like a loaf of bread. Okay, show. Sure. Uh, I apologize. Well, welcome aboard. Okay. And
2: we've got with us Twee Lo, and she's another fellow radio host, and she has a station uh, out of Orlando called The com. So you may end up being a guest on her show, so hang along with us, Tui. Um You have a fantastic website. <clears throat> Excuse me called org, And you started that website for a very interesting reason. And I want you to tell her about it because it's also something that I'm passionate about, too, uh, because we've dedicated a show to that issue. Uh, we also had Admiral, uh, not Admiral, <laughs> Ambassador. Uh, oh, good Lord, I just had a major brain fart here.
4: Mm-hmm. I, I can see it, it's
2: Stevens. Thank you. See Uh, His ex-fiance on the show, because she wrote a book about the incident. So please tell us about yourself and Turning Points in America.
6: Sure. First of all, uh, let me say hello to Twee, because Twee and I ran for Congress at the same time, not in the same district. She was uh, down in the south. So when we were making the rounds, I uh, saw Tweet quite often and heard her speak and uh, love her passion and her, her vision for what she would like to see America to be since uh, <clears throat> she's an immigrant herself, and uh, this is the land of opportunity. So, Tui, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear your uh, your name again.
0: Uh, uh, but my name well, is Ryan Shove.
6: Yes,
5: I do know you. Uh,
6: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, You're when from we were Jacksonville, right? You're
5: from Jacksonville. That's right,
6: Right. We had oh, a long, know who long conversation you are. when I was co- yeah, collecting petitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Oh yes. We actually <laughs> you and I met at a gun show in Jacksonville. That's when I first met you.
3: That's yes. right. We stood Remember and talked that? for about an hour. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
5: Uh-huh. That's yeah. Good. yeah.
3: Good recall. <laughs>
5: uh, yeah. Great <laughs> meeting uh, hearing from you again. But anyway.
6: Uh, well let me uh tell your listeners, my name is Ryan Michelle from uh, 27-year-old veteran, I'm a retired Navy captain, and um, my last four years in the Navy, I taught at the uh, National War College, and the National War College is uh, probably uh, the most well-known college, uh, government college, that teaches strategy. Uh, we teach uh, uh, national security and strategy policy, uh, and uh, John McCain is a graduate of the college, um, um, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of uh, uh State Department the individual that graduated. Uh, Colin Powell. Colin Powell was a graduate of the National War College. And I was up there in 2008, and when I finished up my initial training, I taught uh, an introduction to strategy. And a member was in my class, and the, and the people that come to this class are all senior members. So it's going to be very senior people in all of the branches of the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard, But we also have uh, any of the other um, three-letter government entities, FBI, CIA, uh, NSA, uh, uh, the um, um, State Department. Uh, If it's got a a government identifier with it, they send senior members members also. So beginning in August of 2009 when I got the very first class, I had a member in there by the name of Chris Stevens… Which you may recognize as Ambassador Chris Stevens from Benghazi, and uh, so that's how I got to know the ambassador. Really nice guy, um, kind as could be, loved his country, very smart, spoke about four languages. In fact, in fact, I'm from uh, I'm from North Carolina, so my joke when I talk to people about uh, how I knew him is that he would come in my office. You know, I'm the professor; he's the student. Uh, he speaks four languages, and I would say, gosh, Chris, you know, you speak four languages. I only speak two, English and redneck. Not sure why I'm the mm-hmm. professor, and you're the – you know, you're the student. And he said, well, you know, that's just how it is. So he's, he was incredibly smart, um, was a personal friend of Hillary Clinton. Of course, he worked for her when she ran the State Department. And so when he left the school, he got tasking to open the embassy in Libya. So once he got the, the – um, uh, the embassy established in Tripoli. He came back. This would have been right around April of 2012, and he was telling a group of us, you know, how he established the embassy. And I got to talk to him a little bit afterwards. And then he went back to uh, Tripoli. And he loved tennis. The last time I actually talked to him was through email in July of 2012. I because I, I saw him uh, a picture of him with Hillary Clinton uh, in the Washington Post. And I said, hey, I read this article. You're doing quite well. I know you're doing well in Tripoli. And then he wrote back and said, well, every time I try to play tennis, these Al-Qaeda guys uh, and you'll throw mortar shells into the compound, and I have to leave. And these terrorists are really hurting my tennis game, and I don't appreciate it. So he just hmm. kind of you know, had levity about his tennis game and what he was doing. Little did I know that just a couple months later, uh, 11 September 2012, um, he would be dead. And I mm. wish I had saved the email that he sent me because I retired the last week of August in 2012, and then 11 days later he's dead. So then I came to Jacksonville, and you talked about the Turning Point website. Um, actually, the person that started it was not me. It's a woman by the name of uh, Elizabeth uh, Heath, Beth Heath. Uh, she's about yes. 76 years old. I do know Beth. Yep, yeah. and she's the Everready Bunny. I, I mean, she, yes, she never is. stops. In fact, the only way we would get her to stop at night is to take her battery out, and then we put the battery mm-hmm. back in in the morning, and, that, and that's so she'll, you know, we'll, she'll leave us alone. But she mm-hmm. uh, had a real passion for the fact that the ambassador and his staff um, sent multiple requests through the State Department and to the Obama administration, stating that they were fearful of their security and they needed mm-hmm. more security. And if you know the story, that request was denied and. Um, the security that they had was pulled away, and by the time they got down to um, the second week of September, uh, the only security they had was the contract security. That was the main force of, of what they had uh, to protect the ambassador and his staff. So they left Tripoli to take care of uh, some some issues in Benghazi, and uh, so now they have less security than they're supposed to have, um, and they're they come under attack, and for 13 hours. The ambassador and his staff begged Leon Panetta, who ran the State Department, begged Hillary Clinton, who uh, who ran – I'm sorry, Leon Panetta, who uh, was Secretary of Defense, he ran the the Defense Department, begged uh, Hillary Clinton, who ran the State Department, and the Obama administration for help. And we know that for 13 hours they were not helped. They were left there. Of course, the ambassador died. Three other of his staff members died. Uh, and and the way that story ended is uh, we never did help them get out. It was a Libyan C-130 and some uh, oil company assets, uh, uh, a Learjet that they got on that got them out of Libya and into into Germany. And uh, the, the uh, contractors had been told not to to go help the ambassador. If you remember the movie, they said no, we're going to go help anyway. Uh, as soon as those guys got back to the states, they were fired. Um, because they disobeyed an order to, to, you know, they decided to help the ambassador. And because they did that, they were fired. Uh, and of course, we had the four members who who were killed. And so when I came back here to Jacksonville, I came across Beth, and uh, she was talking about how angry she was about Benghazi. And I mentioned to her that um, I knew the ambassador personally. I told her the story that I just told you and your listeners. And she said, you know, I want to do something. I want to be a person of action, and I want to do a memorial. So in 2013, in September 2013, uh, we went to Tallahassee uh, and actually did the very first memorial on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, We had 70 people there that day. Last year, we had 700 people Came to the memorial, and we have a thousand seats this year. This year it will be in um, eleventh September, uh, three o'clock on Saturday, 11 September, and our guest speaker this year is Dinesh D'Souza. So we do a full memorial to to the members that were left there in Maghazi, and then we um, uh, have a guest guest speaker. We also have. Um, um, Ted Yoho, who is a congressman We have Kevin Shipp, who is a terrorist expert Canine uh, Warriors are going to be there To do part of the procession For the memorial uh, side of the event uh, And it has been growing every year And that's what the website is about That's what the memorial is about And that's why I'm on your show today
2: Uh, It's it's absolutely amazing, because I was looking at it, and it's got a lot of great information, and you do a lot of work also with veterans and veteran-centered businesses and those in need.
6: Uh, It's it's an amazing, amazing website. Yeah, If I could, let me make a couple comments about that. Um, Because our uh, memorial is just once a year, um, we really get hot and heavy uh, – until last year, every every year we did it, of course, on the anniversary of September 11th. But if you remember last year, we had Irma. And um, when Irma hit, we had to change the venue uh, because the venue that we had it at was flooded. So we had to change the venue and make some other uh, some other issues that came up. And so we weren't able to do last year's event until right around the 3rd of December. So we're already into the holidays. So we made the decision this year because we had Dinesh D'Souza and his schedule that it would be better to wait until – uh, November, so that we didn't have to worry about uh, uh, any hurricanes, so we didn't have to reschedule. But we get hot and heavy on it usually right around the July timeframe. So the question is, what does the, the Turning Points group do? And as you pointed out on the website, we do a lot of stuff for veterans. Uh, we have a veteran um, small business directory that is now uh, not only in Florida, but it's up in Georgia. I think we even have some folks on there from Tennessee this out of state, but this is a small business directory. This is uh, a small business either owned by veterans or heavily em- uh, employs veterans. And so we feel like, um, you know, we hear all the time, you thank you for your service. And what I tell people when they tell me that, well, thank you, but my service is not done yet. I've just switched uniforms. I just got out of a, my Navy uniform, and now I have a civilian uniform, but my, my service is not done until I take my last breath. Um, I have plenty of service left in me, and so this is my way of giving back, one, honoring um, those that were left in Maghazi, two, reminding people that it's a turning point, and I'm going to talk about why we call our, our group Turning Points here in just a second, and the third thing is, is that I want to help other veterans, so we do the small business directory, which is – Um, To let other people know, hey, you really want to support veterans? You really want to thank them for their service? Hey, you need some guttering done on your house? You need some painting done on your house? You need some um, mechanical work done on your car? Hey, here's a small business directory, and these are veterans. Why don't you let them paint your house or put gutters on your house or work on your car? Because it helps them. It keeps them employed. And that's how you really honor a veteran, hire a veteran, give a veteran a job. Because as you know, um, there's 22 a day of veterans who kill themselves through suicide. And uh, the VA just pointed out uh, two weeks ago that that number is on the rise, unfortunately. So we do that. Uh, The other thing that we do is um, Clara White Mission, which is downtown in Jacksonville, they uh, help the homeless, but we actually send word out to homeless veterans on certain days and the the uh, Benghazi group goes down, and we feed these veterans. We have another individual who's not a veteran himself but loves veterans. Um, I'm going to put a plug in, Angie Subs. <laughs> he has the best subs in Jacksonville, and he donates, um, uh, well, there are 100 whole subs. We cut them you know, in half, or so 50 whole subs of which we cut in half. So we've got 100 subs for these veterans. And they come in. Uh, I pray over them. And uh, we, we serve them, and then we get food at the very end, and we sit down and talk to these veterans. These are uh, – the last time we did it, we actually had a World War II veteran there. This is a, a guy in his 80s who's homeless, who lives on the street, if you can believe that. But we had uh, Vietnam veterans, Korean veterans, um, um, Desert Storm veterans. And so once we get our food, we, we find a veteran, especially if a veteran sitting by himself, and we sit down and talk to them. They share their story they're really polite. We make sure when they leave at uh, that particular time that they have plenty of food, that they're not hungry. Uh, If they need socks, we get them socks. If they need hand sanitizer, toothbrushes, whatever the case may be, any money that is given Mm -hmm. to that website, to turning points, we turn that in to good things for veterans. And so uh, uh, Beth is not a veteran, but her husband is a veteran, uh, and she is huge in the veteran community. And She collects socks. She collects hand sanitizer. She collects, uh, you know, nabs, crackers, anything that – imagine being on the street. You want something that you could take to – take really quickly. So, you know, small tubes of toothpaste and uh, uh, nabs and chips and stuff like that, Something to walk out the door with. And then we feed them, uh, you know, the best uh, sub-sandwiches in all of Jacksonville, and we do it ourselves, and we sit with them afterwards. And that's where I get that they – uh, like it the most that we don't just say, hey, here's the food, okay, we've done our good deed for the day, leave. No, we sit down with them, listen to their stories, you know, ask them how they're doing. And some of the stories, I'm not going to kid you, it, it makes me cry. I just can't imagine uh, you know, a veteran who has served honorably and now they're just living on the street. I'll tell your listeners a quick story. The last time that we did this was the first time that we had female homeless veterans there. And there was actually three there, and I talked to um, the doctor who was running that program at the mission, and he said, yeah, whenever we have a female homeless veteran come to the door, we get her off the street immediately. Too much of a chance for, uh, you know, for rape, uh, so we pull them off the street and give them a, you know, a safe place. Um, but I was listening to this one veteran, and she used to work at Bethesda Hospital. I'm like, hey, you've got a skill. You worked in Bethesda. How is it you're on the street? And she, he says, you know, it's just a quick story. She got out of the military. She came down here. She didn't get a job. She's living with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend walks in one day and says, I'm done with you. Get out. She's got no family. She's got no job. She's on the street. It's just that quick. And uh, he said she's very, very smart. He says, in two weeks, I'm going to have her a job. I'll have her out of here. She's going to be an easy turnaround. But you can see how quickly someone can have a roof all over their head, and the next next moment they're out on the street, uh, literally by themselves. Uh, so we we uh, you know fed them and took care of her and uh, took care of these other homeless veterans. So I encourage your listeners to one come to the Benghazi memorial, which we're doing on uh, Saturday, three November at three o'clock at the Hyatt Regency riverfront downtown guest speaker going to Dinesh D'Souza you can go to um, uh, the website that you're talking about but you can also just google Dinesh D'Souza slash Jacksonville Dinesh D'Souza slash Jacksonville and the site will come up as well or you can go to Eventbrite type in Benghazi and the search engine and it will come up I wanted to make a comment about um, why we call ourselves turning points if you look at our nation's history, there's been certain turning points that made a huge difference in our country. Uh, For instance, 1776 is a turning point. Um, 7 December 1941 is a turning point. Um, 9-11 is a turning point. But 11 September 2012 is a huge turning point because it was the first time that we know of in our nation's history where we had Americans on foreign soil serving honorably begging for help because they were under fire, and we had an administration that did nothing that left them there. And that is a huge turning point in our country because if we're going to ask men and women to serve, and then they come under attack, and we don't even try to help them to the point that some of them die, I mean, I just don't see how we have a country anymore, and uh, and yet no one was held accountable you know, Hillary Clinton said, you know, at this time, what difference does it make? They're dead, so what? Uh that person we almost uh a hair breaths away from making her president. Um Barack Obama, who is his responsibility to ensure the safety of these men and women in the State Department. And uh he was begged for thirteen hours for help. He did nothing. And yet that was right before a November election and the country reelected him, put him in there for four more years. Uh, in fact, I heard uh, him say last month, you know, the people on the right are making this Benghazi thing a conspiracy. Hey, Mr. President, four people are dead. That's not a conspiracy. That's a fact. And they died on your watch, and you did nothing. You left them there. And on top of that, we have Leon Panetta, who's Secretary of Defense. You know, taxpayers pay hundreds of billions of dollars every year into our our defense because we have uh, defense assets four deployed around the world. Why are they four deployed? That's so when you have an ambassador in Benghazi who's under attack, we can get there quickly and do something about it. Yet not a single airplane was launched. No troops were moved in the area. In fact, everyone that tried to do anything, especially AFICOM, which was responsible for that area of of responsibility, they didn't launch anything. They couldn't. They were told to stand down. And uh, there's only two people that can give that call. That's the president or the secretary of defense. And yet Nobody was held accountable. Uh, It was uh, pushed through the media as no big deal, and yet we had four people come back uh, that are dead. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, we're the only group in America that hasn't forgotten. The rest of the country, I can't say that. But uh, here in Jacksonville, we have a group that hasn't forgotten, and every year we remind people that that was a turning point. uh, And if we keep going down that road, we'll get to a day where we won't have a country anymore.
2: We have not forgotten on this one, and Curtis will tell you that we did a whole entire show talking about that. We had his uh, former fiancé on here with the book and then talking about it. We've talked about Benghazi several times, and also we've talked about Extortion 17 as well as Black Hawk Down. We don't forget on this show, and we we thank you for keeping this and for the service that you did and continue to do.
6: Thank you so much. It's an honor. Look, can I ask you a
5: question? Uh, uh, May I ask you a question there? Um, There are people, veterans, who feel that when the veterans, you know, when, when all men and women go on assignment overseas, they know they're putting themselves on the line, and they know that if they get into trouble, there to get themselves out of trouble. What do you say to people like that 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 uh who who buy excuses or who bought excuses for the Obama administration for Hillary Clinton for not responding to the to uh to the call to the for for help these four Benghazi individuals.
6: Yeah, uh you remember that when Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, was asked, "Well, why didn't you launch any uh, military assets? Uh, Well, they couldn't get there in time. Well, Mm -hmm. how did you know how long it was going to last? Uh, I'll give an interesting fact to your to your listeners. Um, The staff there was under attack for 13 hours. You know, we have supersonic uh, F16s, F15s, F18s. You know, they can get to a, a point in the world fairly quickly." But the, the staff was under attack for 13 hours. Do you know that if you get on a commercial jet in Washington, D.C., you can get to Libya in 12 hours? So they were under attack for 13 hours. That means you and I could get on a 747 out of Dulles. We could have got to Libya in 12 hours and still had a, an hour to help, and yet he's saying that the military couldn't get there at all? That guy was just such a, the biggest cover-up. It just makes my head explode to think about it because I know – the military mindset, and CS knows what I'm talking about here as well. Even oh, yeah. if you had walked in to a group of military men and women and said, hey, we have Americans under attack. We don't think you can get there in time. Before you even said that second part of that sentence, the room would have been out the door heading to wherever the, the sound of the of the guns are because that's how we're trained. All we hear is Americans under attack. We're going. Whether or not we can get there in time, that's not – but that's not in our thinking it's you go you give your best and if you can get there you're going to save Americans because you know the next time that someone's under attack it might be me or it might be you and when you're under attack you want to know that other people who have a uniform on are doing their best to get there to save you so this um, you know this idea well they got themselves into it they have to get themselves out listen that's not how the military thinks the only reason that we even put our um Our lives in a dangerous situation, and it's because we know when we get on the radio and we ask for help, there are going to be people there that are going to come and help me uh, and 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 Cs can back me up on this because we know it's true. Listen, when you're out uh, um, and your life is on the line, all you care about is you're an American. You don't care if you're white black, Vietnamese, male, female, look, you're getting shot at, you want an American with extreme firepower coming in to back you up. And no one is tighter than those of us that wear a uniform because we care about each other, and I'll even go one step further. We love each other, and we want every man and woman to get out of there and be safe so they can come back to uh, what we consider to be a great country. So this uh, this idea that, well, they got themselves into it, they should have got themselves out, no. We need to, we need to elect officials who will meet their responsibilities, and they don't leave our people there that get killed. And so it's disheartening when that happened in September, and then we turn right around and we elect the very president uh, that allowed that to happen, and almost elected the Secretary of State as president uh, four years later.
2: Hmm. Well, Captain, we had the same thing in NYPD. If you got a call out there, we called it a 1013. If you heard a 1013, you dropped whatever you did and went to that officer's aid, which is why Benghazi yes. resonates with me so well, because you know who the boss is that tells you to stand down, and no way is that person going to remain in your command after that. But this is what angered me so much about it, and like you said, how can you tell me that there was not enough time to get assets there? And, yes, there were assets in place less than half an hour away that could have been there. And if they needed a cleanup, would have been available for cleanup or for rescue or for medical aid or whatever. They had no idea how long that would last or what the assets could be used for once they were in place. You know, It was a complete bunk, complete lie, and just that's it. It's a complete cover-up. And why no one has been held accountable is is – Unforgivable.
3: Unforgivable. Well, you know, that well, <laughs> that seems to happen under um Democrat administrations. Um, you think of um, Black Hawk Down. You know, these guys had to struggle for, I think, more than overnight, 18, 19 hours until they got help. And who was the president then? Bill yeah, Clinton. Bill Clinton.
6: Yeah, uh, we
2: yeah, we had one of those guys that ran the Mogadishu Mile on the show.
6: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, mm-hmm. I want to inform your listeners of another piece of information that, that a lot of the people in the military know, but the civilians don't know. And <clears throat> back uh, during the Reagan administration, uh, we had uh, an event where we had to go to Grenada and rescue some, uh, some, some American students there. And even though we were successful, it, it it took a lot of effort for the most powerful country in the world to execute what should have been a very simple, uh, very simple exercise. And so after that, Congress got engaged and they passed something called the Goldwater-Nichols Act. And the whole purpose of this act was to put in writing very specific chain of command. So because what was happening in Grenada, we had uh, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And so this uh, Goldwater-Nichols kind of specifically said, hey, here's who, in char- here's who is in charge, and here's who is, has to execute, and let's make sure that we know what our responsibilities are. And what was created out of that was something called the National Command Authority, the NCA. Uh, the National Command Authority consists of just two people, the president and the secretary of defense. Now, in this last election, uh, Hillary Clinton took a lot of heat about what happened in Benghazi, but honestly, it really wasn't her responsibility. It was her responsibility in the fact that she was Secretary of State, and she should have been screaming up and down about, hey, my people are under attack. Why aren't you doing your job? But the chain of command was President Barack Obama and Leon Panetta as Secretary of Defense. There was no other chain of command, and yet no one was held accountable, and when Trey Gowdy did the investigation on Benghazi… I was floored that, my goodness, you didn't, you didn't ask Leon Panetta, put him under oath, and say, look, you're one half of the National Command Authority. Anytime an American is under attack outside the United States, it's your responsibility to engage and, and take action. You know, so were you given a direct verbal order from the president to stand down? Because it's either yes or no. And if the answer is no, then how come you as one half of the National Command Authority didn't do your job? It's that simple, and yet Leon Panetta was never even called in as far as I know, and he certainly wasn't asked that question. He certainly wasn't put under oath, and so I am just floored that something to me that should be very, very simple of if the president told you to stand down, that's treason. Flat out, that's treason, and and if he didn't, then how come you didn't do your job? You should be held accountable as well since you got four dead bodies on your watch, and yet… Nothing was ever said to the Secretary of Defense, and, of course, the president was never held accountable. And he says it's just a conspiracy theory by the right. That's what he said uh, last month. Uh, so a lot of people don't know that, but it's a very simple chain of command. And I've been challenged when I give speeches around Jacksonville on this, on this issue. And there's always seems to be one or two Democrats in the crowd, and they'll ask me, how do I know that the president gave a direct verbal order? And I, I tell them that because it's a National Command Authority. It's only two people. It's only two people that turned off the military president secretary of defense there's nobody else in the chain of command and that's straight from from an act of congress so i know he had to give the the, the order because it couldn't have come from anywhere else
2: michael i have got two questions here number one is it is it because this is the theory that's been going around and there's been put in a couple of uh, articles and books that ambassador stevens was sacrificed because of the administration's gun running to the uh, the rebels there and why hasn't any of the commanding officers that received that order come forward and say, yes, they gave that order?
6: Uh, two great questions. First of all, uh, I do believe that he was sacrificed uh, for that. Now, there's there's two theories that I've heard. Uh, the first one is, is that if you remember, there's the blind sheik. He was uh, the terrorist that attacked the World Trade Centers in 1993. How, I can one never forget is, that day
2: because that- I know – Captain, i can tell you that I can never forget that day because I know exactly where I was. I was at the 90 precinct in Brooklyn, just across the other side of the Williamsburg Bridge, when the towers were attacked the first time. I was on duty in wow. uniform, but I was one of the walking men, mm. and I will wow. never forget that day because I had to turn mm. around and help the front desk call up all the, these guys that were off duty and have them come in for, for that incident. I will never forget that day 1993. And hmm. so
6: you know that the mastermind mastermind behind that is the Blind Sheikh. Blind Sheikh. And yep. so yep. yep, so one of the th- of course he's dead now and uh, I'm sure it's a little warm where he is and he deserves it but uh hmm. but anyway, um one of the theories is is that um the reason that the CIA officer had … pulled back the uh, contract security was that actually Ambassador Chris Stevens was supposed to be kidnapped, and then once he was kidnapped, then Obama was going to come in and say, hey, we've got to get our ambassador back. We'll give you the blind cheek. We get the ambassador back, and now Obama's looking like a hero right before the election. It was going to help him uh, to make sure that he got elected for a second term, but then once the contractors disobeyed orders and went in there and did a full firefight, then instead of the ambassador getting kidnapped, he gets killed… Now that's one theory that I've heard. Going back to what you said about the gun running, I've heard that exact same thing, and I'll take that story one step further, um, is that the reason that he was sacrificed is because he had run through the chain of command because he knew those arms were leaving Libya and being moved to ISIS, and now ISIS is killing American soldiers. How treasonous is that? Barack Obama takes out Gaddafi, Gaddafi's gone. Now we have all these guns. Now those guns are being run to ISIS. Now ISIS is being used to kill American soldiers. Boy, that makes you want to put on a uniform, doesn't it? Chris found out about it. He run it back to the chain of command saying, hey, I know this is wrong. He was told to shut up. Chris said, hey, I'm going to go to the media after Benghazi. He had to be taken out of Benghazi. That's the other part of that theory that I've heard. But that's why he had to be killed, because he was going Mm. to go to the media and let them know, hey, this is what's happening, and and it's coming from the Obama administration. And so he was sacrificed. So I kind of believe – I believe both of them, uh, but I'm kind of more inclined to believe the one that you brought up, only because in the movie there's a scene where the contractors are trying to buy guns from the gun runners. Well, why are they trying to do that? I mean – my Goodness, we took out Gaddafi, but we couldn't take out all the weapons. okay, if you say so, It uh, seems like we took out Gaddafi, and then we just kind of kind of backed away so i I in my heart, I kind of think that's a more viable um a more viable thought of what happened is that he was going to let the cat out of the bag, and so they had they had to sacrifice him so he'd be quiet.
2: You know, wow. The Obama administration had this thing with gun running. You look at Fast and Furious, and even that, nothing has come out of. We were talking about Fast and Furious long before mainstream media decided to run at least a couple of the articles. You know, it was a Sher- Cheryl Atkinson was the one that blew that one wide open. Finally, um, but there was something about the Obama administration and running guns.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
6: Yeah, and not uh, not on the good side. That's for sure. It seemed like uh, they were think, falling uh, <laughs> falling guns to the bad guys.
3: Yeah, and I think that um, Eric Holder is, may be interested in running for president <laughs> in 2020. Oh. And yeah, God help us. <laughs>
2: yeah, cause. It's just it, – it infuriates me because we have the instances of Fast and Furious, and no one's been held accountable for that. We have Benghazi. No one has been held accountable that, for that. We have Extortion 17. No one has been held accountable for that. And we see scandal after scandal after scandal with the Obama administration, and yet when even when they do a hearing in Congress, nothing happens. The IRS going after conservative groups, and it was some of my personal friends that they were going after uh, – with the Myrtle Beach Tea Party. Uh, There's nothing – this administration has been held accountable for zero, and yet they'll take credit for all the good things that Trump is doing. Doesn't this
0: just drive you crazy?
6: Yeah. yeah, Well, you asked me a question, and I'm sorry I didn't uh, – I forgot to answer it. You asked me a question about all these people involved. Why don't they come forward? And I think the same thing. Uh, for example, uh, we talked about AFRICOM, which is the uh, – that's the um, the commander who is responsible for what happened in Maghazi as far as taking action to to assist. And uh, that's a four-star position. I mean that's the highest rank you can get, four-star, which was uh, General Ham. And uh, I have a friend of mine, when I left the National War College, he replaced me um, – I ran the, the Navy Department there, and he replaced me, a good friend of mine, David Mayo, and he had uh, – had gone to AFRICOM to do some stuff for the college. And so, right before I retired, I was in his office talking to him, and he says, You know, Ryan, he says, Man, this is really strange. He says, You know, I went over to AFRICOM to do some stuff for the college that had nothing to do with Benghazi. It was, you know, it was just uh, an academic exercise. And he says, Yeah, you know, it was strange. I'm talking to General Ham's staff. And he says, One day the general comes in and says, Hey, I've been asked to come to, to D.C. Um, to you know, answer some questions about uh, Benghazi and what's going on in this part of the world, he says I'll be back in two weeks. And so they say, okay, General, you know, we'll see you in two weeks. And he leaves, never comes back. The next thing they know, they get a message yeah, he that said, hey, pack up his stuff. Yep, pack up his stuff, including his dirty underwear. And here's the address where you send it. The general is not coming back. And he just you know, was brought back. I'm guessing fired by Obama because he actually wanted to stand up and do something. I don't know what they have all over their heads. I don't know. Even Trey Gowdy, who I like, I have a lot of respect for, he had all that power to really put Benghazi on the forefront, and yet they wrote like three thousand pages. There was no recommendations. No one was held accountable. Didn't even bring in one half the National Command Authority, which is Leon Panetta, and put him under oath. I mean, if I could get him in a room, that's why I'd ask him. What do they have over you that you're too afraid to really stand up and and do your job? Just another quick story. We know De- uh, Kevin um Nune- uh, Devin Nunes who, out of California who has been doing a lot of stuff about uh, the Russian probe uh, against uh, our president. And a few weeks ago, he was on um, Tucker Carlson's show, and he's – Nunes is talking about all this information he's seen and how important it is, and boy, if the people knew, and, and Tucker said, hey, look, when – when under the Bush 43 administration, when we were doing waterboarding, Dianne Feinstein took that top-secret information and put it into the congressional record. And once you put it in the congressional record, anybody can look at it, and they can't take any action against the the, uh, congressperson or senator that puts that into the record. And Tucker said, why don't you do the same thing? Why don't you take that information that you have, put it in the congressional record… You can't be prosecuted, and yet the American people can see it. And oh my gosh, the change on Nunes' face, he just said, no, I, I can't do that. There's no way that I can do that. And Tucker said, well, why not? You know, Dianne Feinstein did it. Why don't you do it? He said, I can't do that. And Tucker said, I'll tell you what. You bring it to me. I don't care what the classification is. I'll put it on the show, and, and the American people will know what's really going on. And Nunes said, I can't do that. And that was the end of the interview. So I don't know what they have on. I don't know how they threaten them or what position they put them in, but they have a stronghold because I've wanted the same thing. You have all these families uh, who are dead. You have um, all these people in the military that had to know what was going on, and yet they're all quiet other than me. I'm not quiet because you know I do this every year, and I try to, uh, we b- try to bring in many people as we can to let the, at least the people here in Jacksonville know that some of us haven't forgotten, and some of us aren't going to stand down. Now, it, it is amazing because when I was watching Gowdy doing these uh,
2: hearings, I kept on wondering why he didn't follow through on a lot of his questions. Why didn't he take it to the next step? And you're right, why certain people were on call you know, I live in South Carolina. I'm right smack in the heart of the Tri Command, which you're probably you're familiar with, because I've got up the road a couple of miles of Marine Corps Air Station in Beaufort. Down the other side, I've got the Naval Hospital, and then a few more miles across, my doctor's office is Paris Island uh, Recruit Training Depot. So, you know, we sometimes I hear things that you know normal people would not be able to hear. But I kept on wondering why the other questions were not asked. Why was Ham – I've heard that story too – why Ham suddenly disappeared? And other people, when they started to come forward, all of a sudden just disappeared, and you never heard from them again. Why Gowdy never followed on those questions was the most disturbing thing to me. And the chat room was asking whether or not he was aiming for a position in Trump's cabinet, but I also have some inside hint from certain people that, no, he's aiming for SCOTUS. He actually wants the Supreme Court. So you know you wonder whether or not it's greed or protecting their own butt. What is the answer? And
6: I don't know if we'll ever find out. I don't know. But now that I know you're in South Carolina, I figured out why you brought me on your show because you know I'm a Citadel graduate.
2: (laughs) That's up the The Citadel in Charleston. Up in Charleston, about an hour away. (laughs) (laughs) I pass that when I go to some of my other doctors. I when I have to go up to Charleston, which is sometimes a little too more often than I want.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I hey, finally Captain. teach
6: together. Now I know why I'm on your show. Yeah, yes. Yes,
3: yes. Hey Captain. Yeah. Isn't there another group with a similar similar name to your group? Correct. Turning Point. Yeah. And what's the difference? Right. We're
6: sure. We're turning points in America. As I explained the different turning points in our country. The group you're talking about is turning point USA. Uh, and the it difference is, is uh, correct. Uh, Turning Point USA, they really focus on the young conservatives. In fact, they're going to be speaking uh, at the Benghazi Memorial, which again is uh, 3 November at 3 o'clock, uh, and I already said we're going to have a guest speaker, Dinesh D'Souza and, and some others, but they're going to be there assisting us this year, and they're also going to be giving a speech, and I love this, about uh, young conservative millennial Outreach, uh, so they are the group that is um, you know pulling out all the stops to let people you know my age I'm 55 to let people my age know that hey there are conservatives I have two kids my own and they are very conservative because that's how I raised them um, and my daughters teaching in japan right now my son's getting ready to go into marine corps but um the turning point usa group will be there and they'll also be speaking about their efforts to reach out to bring other young conservatives in and let them know you're not alone there are people who have right minded thinking love their country they want to be patriots and they want to have a good country to live in just like we have and so they're going to be there on the 3rd, and they're going to be speaking as well. You probably know Candace Owens, uh, which, by the way, I'd never even heard of her until my daughter turned me on to her. So my daughter was was uh, all over Candace Owens and Turning Point USA before I was. Um, but they will be there on the 3rd also, and so I'm glad you brought that up, CS, because they are the biggest group, maybe even the only group, that that uh, really reaches out to young millennial conservatives to to uh, coordinate them and to organize them and to unite them, so that we can fight uh, the onslaught of the left. And as you well know, Antifa attacks these people physically, attacks these people, as it happened in Philadelphia uh, about a month ago. So um, yeah, the left is violent, and these young people are standing up to it.
2: Yeah, it's it's funny because we've had people from Turning Point USA on the show, as well as to my Tea Party, because I'm I'm the Tea Party leader here, and we've got a, we've got the. The uh, University of South Carolina campuses are here, the Technical College of Low Country, and I keep on trying to get them to activate inside these colleges because there is none, and we can't seem to do it. So I'm going to have to get back on their case again and get them over here. It's important what they do. But I got another question because I was listening to an interview you were doing, and you mentioned something about a movie, and I hope I wrote it down correctly, Crossroads for America.
6: Crossroads for America. I'm drawing a blank on that. You had mentioned, I, I gave that in a
3: speech? Ah.
2: In a, oh. It was an interview uh, you did. Um, I'm trying to remember who was interviewing you. But they, you were talking about, you know, your your Benghazi uh, event, and you had mentioned something about a movie, Crossroads for America. Cause I was trying to find it, and I couldn't. And that's why I was asking you about it.
6: Hmm. I'm, my apologies. I'm drawing a I'm drawing a blank on that. I'm not sure what the context okay. was. I'm I'm sorry. Um That's hmm. all right. <laughs> I don't know. When well, so, I get off your show I'm gonna have to rack my brain until I figure figure that one out. I'm not sure what I was what well, the context so, <laughs> of the discussion
3: was. It may be it may be the movie that um Teeds was um associated with, one of the um the guys that were was the defender of um Benghazi. He was a contractor. And um we, we saw the movie when I met him and that might be associated with him.
6: Ah, yeah, it might be. It might be. I don't think I saw that movie. Maybe I wanted to go see the movie and I've already forgotten about
3: mm-hmm. it. No, I, well I'm, it was um, about it was about that night in Benghazi and you know, it was like yeah. um uh, some more background information than what you saw in the movie Thirteen Hours.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. this, this no, is this. is can't because your question. Was... <laughs> that's
2: right. That's right. Uh, that's because Senator Collins just was giving a speech uh, and it looks like she's probably about the near of it. And they're stating she signals that she will be voting. Yes, she signals. And I warn you guys, signals means it's going to give her wiggle room to vote no come tomorrow. She's still standing on, on the on the fence, even though she's saying, oh, I'm going to vote yes. but Maybe I may not interesting, isn't that now?
6: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I have to agree with uh, people who say, goodness gracious, you know, when, uh, when the Democrats had everything, the Republicans said, oh, we're stuck. And so then we gave them the House, and they passed every spending bill the Democrats wanted. They said they needed the Senate. We gave them the Senate, and then they said, well, we don't have the White House. And then we gave them the White House, and yet still they can't just vote and get Kavanaugh through. I mean, what's the purpose of giving them the power? If they don't use it, I don't. Uh, it's very frustrating. Uh, I, I have to give the Democrats credit on one issue, and that is when they get power, they line up. They do. They do as they're told, and they push their agenda as hard as they can. I don't know what's up with the Republicans. It's it's frustrating. That's why Tweelow and myself wanted to become congressmen so that we would have two more people up there doing what was right, <laughs> and uh,
0: we, yeah. we weren't going to
6: back down. I know that for a fact. Mm.
2: That is true. That is true. Now, you ran for office uh, a couple of years back. Would you be looking to run again?
6: (laughs) I get asked that all the time, and uh, I'll give you my standard response. You know, if you run as a Republican these days, they'll shoot you if you're just playing softball. Uh, And if I ran as a Democrat, I'd have to shoot myself. So I'm not sure that's uh, (laughs) in my future for any time (laughs) soon.
0: Oh man,
2: it's funny because uh, people once in a while around here turn around and go, "Ann, why don't you run for so and so seat, you know, in the, the state senate or the state house?" And I said, "Listen, long ago I pro- promised my mama, and I says I'll never be a politician. I will rather sweep
6: sewers first,
2: <laughs> which is basically what you do as a politician anyway."
6: But I'll tell you, sort a story oh. when you, when uh, you know you're talking about running for office. Um, when I decided to run, and, and I my real reasoning for running is that less than 20% of the members of Congress have any military experience, and that was what was really driving me is that we need one more veteran in the House of Representatives, and I ran in the Congressional 4th District, which has two Navy bases, of which I had two commands when I was in the Navy. Both of those commands were at NAS Jacksonville and then uh, three of my eight deployments, I deployed out of Mayport, and those are the two bases that are in that district. And yet, uh, I was still on the fence of whether or not I was going to run. And I'm coming out of the base gym. I mean, it was a it was a Friday morning, about ten o'clock, and I get this phone call from someone very high up in the Republican Party, and said, "Hey, we're." We're hearing rumors that you're thinking about running for Congress. Of course, I'm thinking they're going to say, great, come on in. We've got a veteran. You know, Good luck. And I said, well, I'm just thinking about it, and this is what – the next thing that was said to me, uh, if you know what's good for you, you better not. And I said, well, Ooh. I don't really understand why you're saying that. I'm like, "You know, don't the people decide who they want? And this person laughed and said, yeah, that's what they think. We decide who they're going to vote for, and they vote for who we tell them to, to vote for. And you're And you're not the candidate, do you understand that? And I said, "Well, you know, I don't really appreciate that, and I don't like being threatened and uh I said, you know i I think that that's what I want to do and They said, "Well, I'll tell you what, if you do decide to run for Congress, we'll make sure you never get a job in Jacksonville And I said, "Well, really, it's ten o'clock in the morning and I'm leaving the gym. Just how much more unemployed do you think you can make me I said I don't like that, especially considering I'm a Navy captain, and I walked home, walked in the door at my house and told my wife, I'm running, if for no other reason than to poke those people in the eye and to tick them off because I, I can't believe that they said that to me. And I so wish I had it recorded because I would love to be able to play that on as many radio shows as I could of telling uh, you know, me one that I wasn't going to get a job, two that I, I I better not or I'd regret it. And the third thing is, is, is the people don't decide. We decide, and they vote for who we tell them to vote for. Um, So very, very
2: frustrating You're not the first person i heard that from them You're not the first person i heard A story similar to that Uh, We have Gerhard Mm -hmm. Gressman Is trying to run against James Clyburn And the National and the State Are not backing him And the reason they're giving him Is that he would not uh, sign an oath That they had him do uh, Because he's looking at it and goes What you have on here is nice But it doesn't go far enough he wanted stricter things written in there compared to what they were telling him. And at that point, this is, well, we're not going to you know, stand behind you. So he's running against James Clyburn with no assets behind him. Uh, I've heard time and time again, and he's also a veteran, too, and an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And I hear time and time from people that try to challenge the status quo being told, no, yeah. we're not. We There's always an excuse. I mean, he's not the first person trying to go against Clyburn here in the state. And a friend of mine, she tried it. She is of uh, mixed race. Uh, she's part uh, Hispanic, part Hawaiian, part something else. A perfect minority ca- candidate and a female to go up against Clyburn. And she she was she had moderate tendencies at times, which would have pulled independence over and probably unseated Clyburn. But they said, oh, right. no, he's too entrenched, and it's going to cost us too much money. It's not worth the time and the effort to challenge his seat. Right, well, yeah. I, it, you're
6: the first person. Well, uh, well the, hmm. another thing they told me w- was uh, they said, well, you better not because you'll ruin your brand. And I said, my brand? I'm just a retired Navy captain. I don't I don't have a brand. What are you talking about? And they said, well, if you want to get into the Republican Party, you come to us and we'll we'll wiggle you in, and then if you want to be a congressman, you know, maybe 10 years down the road, we'll make that happen. I'm like, in 10 years, I'll be in my 60s. What are you talking about? I want to do it now. And so later on, when Trump was running, the very first time I heard him speak, he was giving a speech in uh, – I think it was in Alabama. And he's up there talking, and my wife and I are listening, and he says, you know, I had the Republican Party that came to me and said I shouldn't do it because I'd, ru- I'd ruin my brand. And I'm like, that's the exact same thing they told me. I'd ruin my brand. They're telling Trump the same way. The difference is, I don't have a brand. Trump does. <laughs> and if he <you> crosses <laughs> he'll fire you.
3: <laughs> Captain, I, I got one last question for you, and this is this is uh-huh? a short question. Um, what do you think of um, Navy? Well, no, not even just Navy. Uh, military powers being replaced by drones. I mean, where's the where's the the honor and the glory and the heroism? And, and, and drones.
6: Yeah. Well, uh, you're right. There's not a lot of uh, not a lot of glory in that, as far as from a pilot's perspective. Uh, but I'll give you two thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, if if we can ever get the drones to a position to do air combat, you know, what we would consider dogfighting, um, we would always be able to dominate the skies because when you're trying to pull on another airplane, what you're limited by is not how many G's your airplane can take, but how many G's the human can take. Uh, you know, about 13 G's is all you can sustain when you're trying to pull on another airplane. Uh, imagine if you're in an airplane and you can pull 13 G's, but the drone you're up against can pull 20 G's. Uh, you, there's no way you'd ever be able to out dogfight him. Uh, so the first thought is, if you're just trying to have dominance in the sky, if we can ever get to that point, uh, no other country would be able to touch us uh, because we'd never, you know, they'd never be able to shoot us down—at least not one-on-one like you think in a dogfighting arena. The other thing is, is that um, if uh, you know you still have a human flying the drone, but of course he's in some you know module in the safe zone somewhere. So if your drone gets shot gets shot down, well, what happens? Nothing. You get another drone, and your pilot flies the next one. Where if your pilot, if you're if you're piloting an airplane and you get shot down, well now you've got a POW issue. Um, now that enemy can use that POW to their advantage, just like the Vietnamese did, to try to do with our, our, our POWs. So there is some advantages to having drones as we move forward. Uh, it would take some of the issues off the table um, that we've had in the past. But I do agree with you, CS. Um, it's a whole lot less honorable because it kind of takes the fun out of it of being a warrior in the sky uh, by just uh, you know sitting at a computer screen somewhere maneuvering a drone that's uh, um, uh, several thousand miles away. Now, I've been the Creech, which is outside of Vegas. And that's the control point for the drones that we fly over Afghanistan, so the drones are actually launched out of Turkey, but the pilot, the person that's actually doing the piloting is sitting right outside of Las Vegas in Nevada. I've been to that facility. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And if you lose a drone, oh, well, you just get another drone because you don't have to worry about uh, doing search and rescue for the pilot.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I heard it's a phenomenal number of people that are behind that single drone. Uh, I heard somewhere upwards of 35 people for a single drone.
6: Um. Well, I know you have two crews. You have a crew in – you know, wherever you're launching them, in this case, Turkey. So that crew just makes sure that it, you know, it's serviced and maintained. And then once it takes off, then the people that are sitting in Creech is actually flying it. But that was only a crew of three. Um, so I don't know how many maintainers you have. I mean, 35 doesn't sound unreasonable to me, but uh, I
0: don't, I don't see
6: how it would be many more than that. I'm, I'm thinking you're just primarily your maintainers, maintaining your equipment, but that's any jet. Any military aircraft is going to have lots of maintainers per per aircraft. But as far as actually just maneuvering it, when I was in the control room, it was just three people: just a pilot, you know, a pilot, a co-pilot, and a mission commander, and that was it.
2: Yeah, you know, there's so many innovations and so much to talk about in the military, even with the robots they're now developing on the ground, um, but we've, I've extended the show a few minutes because it's been so interesting speaking with you, and it's a pleasure to, and honor to have you on the uh, show with us, and there's so much information that you have given us and our, our audience is just loving it in the chat room, uh, so I welcome you back to the show any time.
6: Hey, um I'm, I'm not running for Congress and uh, uh, and I don't have a job yet. So hey, I've got all the time in the world. You just <laughs> let me when you let me know when you're going to be on to just text away. i will glad I'd glad to be on and talk about any uh, any number of foreign policy issues. I mean, I give foreign policy policy speeches all the time. So I will I will talk foreign policy or military issues or even social issues. Whatever you want to talk about, I'll certainly give you my opinion based on my experience.
2: Oh, that's great. Um because I have a lot of people that are military experts, a couple of them are military professors, former military veterans themselves. Uh, I don't know if you know Colin Heaton. He is that, happens to be a good friend of mine, a uh, good military historian. Um, just one last thought, though. When you do talk to Dinesh, because he's been on our show a few times in the past. I've been trying to get him back on. Tell him, hey, listen, that lady over at Sudden Suns, she's kind of nice. Why don't you get on the show? <laughs>
6: Hey, I'll do, I'll do that. Uh, you know, we have uh, VIP tickets. Uh, uh, people can buy VIP tickets for the, for the memorial here on the 3rd. Uh, but I don't ever get to go to that because I'm always practicing the memorial part of our service. So people that show up, they actually get to have more fun than I do because I'm backstage making everything happen because I'm the master of ceremonies. Uh, but afterwards, he's always out there signing books. So I give him my, uh, my word that when he signs my book, I'll, I'll mention that to him so that he'll get back on your program. <laughs>
0: Thanks.
6: <laughs> well, God bless you for all the hard work you do, Captain. Thank you so much, and it's an honor being on your show today.
0: All right. Okay.
2: Check out his website, which is org. Make sure it's not dot org. Turningpointsinamerica.org. Curtis, we got ourselves a great show on t- uh, Tuesday. The fireworks are going to hit the fan. This is going to be a knockdown, <laughs> drag-out uh, because we got a All friend right. of mine. He was a panelist on another conservative show, IQ Al-Rasouli. He'll be joining us. Uh, he is a former Iraqi Muslim that now speaks out about the truth about Islam. He is going to go to head-to-head with Muslim apologist Rahil Araza, and she's with the Clarion Project. She's trying to convince us that Islam can become a peaceful uh Religion, and we are going to counter her with that. That's going to be yeah. followed with a personal advisor and pastor to Donald Trump, Pastor Paula White. So we're going to have a really rocking good show on Tuesday. Welcome everyone to join us back on Tuesday, same bat time, same bat station. And with that, we are out of time, Curtis.
0: Yeah, I see. matter of fact, we're really <laughs> time.
2: So I want to thank everyone that joined us up in the chat room, was watching over on Facebook and YouTube. I apologize. I didn't put the captain's picture up because I was in such a great conversation with him. I forgot to, but it went out the last few minutes of the we'll show. We'll do it the next so time. He you.
3: has such a handsome, <laughs> handsome uh, mug. Oh, exactly.
2: he's, he's, he's a looker. I'm a little too old for him.
0: <laughs> anyway,
2: I'm leaving you with our closing show. Uh, closing show closing song when the call when the role i can't even talk today when the role is called up yonder so until then i say good night and god bless <laughs>